0: Decoding Cyberspace is brought to you by the SGAC Space and Cybersecurity Project Group, mobilising the creativity and vigour of youth in advancing humanity through the peaceful uses of outer space. Welcome to episode 4 of Decoding Cyberspace, a show dedicated to exploring the frontiers of information communications technology and cybersecurity across the final frontier. On this episode, we are delighted to welcome special guest Victoria Sampson, the Washington Office Director for Secure World Foundation. Victoria has 20 years of experience in military and space security issues, having previously worked as a senior analyst at the Center for Defense Information and a senior policy associate at the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers. Victoria, welcome to Decoding Cyberspace and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Firstly, could you help inform our audience more about your professional background, particularly your experiences leading up to your current position at the Secure World Foundation? Uh,
1: sure. So um, I am a political scientist by training. I am not a real scientist. Um, so my background into space, how I got into space was more uh, via the policy angle. Um, I have a degree in international relations, and I was very interested in security issues. Uh, my first job out of grad school was working on scripting wargaming scenarios, what is now the US Missile Defense Agency. Um, I did that for a couple of years, learned a lot about that whole world (laughs) Um, because my background is decidedly non-military growing up. Um, And it was very interesting, but it wasn't a good fit for me for many reasons. And so after a couple years of doing that, I switched over to the arms control side of the world, went over to the light side, as I like to say, and started working on following um, spending on nuclear weapons, on missile defense, on chemical and biological weapons, that sort of thing. And uh, space was kind of a natural offshoot, Uh, particularly from missile defense Um, and I did that for a couple years and um, got to really know the issue Um, and then when Secure World Foundation wanted to um, work on establishing a DC presence um, I was one of the people that applied for the job and I got the job Being the Washington office director for the Secure World Foundation and I've been there for 11 years now
0: love it moving along what are you currently focused upon at the Secure World Foundation and where do you see yourself in five years? Uh,
1: well, I tend to focus on, as I said before, the security side of issues. Uh, for those of you who are not organization, the Secure World Foundation is a private operating foundation that focuses on the long-term sustainability of space. So space, is, excuse me, space sustainability is our game. So we focus on all issues that affect that and that can like, interfere with uh, stability domain security issues Um, it could be things like awareness or SSA things like space debris um, commercial um, space perspectives policy and law um, looking at using space for human environmental security that sort of thing Um, so I tend to focus more as I said before on the security side of issues um, particularly how space is a key enabler for national security and a real factor in international geopolitical discussions about anything security related. Space is a, a part of that. Um, I am. Some people think of it, I think particularly people who are just interested in space for space sake, they're very excited about the scientific and technical of it. And absolutely those are very interesting. But really the policy and legal issues are crucial for moving on the next steps and how we use space. Um, you know, whether or not you can do anything from an engineering perspective, if the law and the policy isn't there, you're not gonna do it. Tend to focus on at um, Secure World Foundation. Do a lot of multilateral discussions. um, Work a lot with different countries. My my country of particular interest is India. Um, But yeah, so that's really what I focus on. And over the next five years, uh, really is. Users and the and how space is comprised. You know we have the launching of the mega constellations going on right now. Um, we have over three thousand active satellites. If all the satellites that are planned to be launched are actually launched, we could have up to one hundred and seven thousand more satellites in the next ten years, and so it's really going to affect every aspect of how we discuss in space. So I think that's really what I'll be focusing on for the next five years or so.
0: So to set the tone. What exactly is it about outer space which excites you? Where did your interest initially stem from?
1: Well, um, I think I'm kind of an outlier in people who work on space policy, in that I know a lot of people who are just were grew up fascinated by space. You know, always wanted to go up in space. Loved looking at the moon when they're little. You know, I know a lot of people who went to space camp as a kid. None of that. None of that applies to me. (laughs) <laughs> um, my dad was an aerospace engineer and so he did work on, um, some aspects of the Apollo program. So I did grow up, you know, being aware of the space shuttle and that sort of thing, but zero interest in it. Absolutely none. Um, um, so I, really my space interest came in terms of how it affects other issues, how it affects, you know, um, economic relations, how it affects national security, how it affects Multilateral discussions, how it affects geopolitical considerations overall, um, and I think that's okay. You know, I think it's fine. You know, people think of space as only being accessible, or usable for those who have a scientific and engineering interest, and absolutely, that's there. But I think space is big enough, haha, for all sorts of interests and all sorts of specialties, and um, that's I think where I would come in from the political or policy consideration
0: if given the opportunity, would you like to travel to outer space yourself?
1: Absolutely not. I have nightmares. I swear I have nightmares where somehow I'm in space and I'm like in some sort of spaceship and just floating and just a thin tether connects me to the mothership. God, no, you could not pay me enough money to go into space. Um, I do have a seven-year-old and, you know, she obviously gets a lot of, have a ton of space stuff around the house and, you know, kids just like space. It's an interesting subject. And so she'll ask me, you know, hey, have you ever been to space? I'm like, No, baby, I haven't. OK, well, can I go to space? Yeah, probably. You know, she's seven. I'm thinking the chances are pretty good by the time she's an adult. It'll be more common for the average person to go in space. And then she'll say, well, can you and I go together? And I'm just like, well, you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to that.
0: So how do you see the intersection between cyber and space? How will cybersecurity concerns shape human activities in outer space over the next decade?
1: Space and cyber have a really interesting relationship because they're both places that are essentially, I mean, space is a place, obviously, but they're both places where essentially what you get is the information. You know, that's where the benefit comes from. It's not like air or ground or sea where there's a physical Domain you can control. Um, So, space and cyber have this interwoven relationship where the benefit we get from space is not necessarily being in space, the information we can get from, and the ability to use space to share information. And of course, cyber in and of itself, that's what it is basically it's information being shared. And they do share a lot of the same infrastructure, you know, down to it, sharing cyber. Space information and space information. So they, they do that as well. And so that's really how I think cybersecurity concerns will shape space issues. Is that vulnerabilities in cyber almost de facto mean there's going to be vulnerabilities in space, and um, you have the added complication for you know space um, cybersecurity in that your objects are by the very definition hundreds if not thousands of, of miles or, or kilometers talking to an international audience kilometers away um, and so that that makes it more difficult to get at you know you think about you know when you buy a laptop and how many, how many times you have to do updates how many times you have to keep you know getting the software uh, to the latest standards you can't really do that with space stuff so you don't have that option of doing that you're really kind of stuck with whatever Cybersecurity um, norms or standards were in practice when the thing was built, um, and you know for for the newer space assets, uh, the newer satellites are coming up. As we see emerging space actors get more involved, I think it's going to be, become less of an issue because they have a shorter development time. But for things like the exquisite national security um, satellites that are billions of dollars and take decades to make, I mean they're really based on te- you know cybersecurity standards that are decades old. Thankfully, they've got their own you know, security issues because they're, you know, part of the national security infrastructure still. it's Um, So I think it's going to be, I I think the improvements in cybersecurity will also lead to improvements in cyberspace security. And I think vice versa. Um, But you really need to have a coordination and discussions between the two domains to really achieve that.
0: Following on from that, would you consider that warfare in space forms a significant part of concerns in the intersection between space and cyber?
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, warfare in space can be defined a bunch of different ways. Um, You can have where you're physically attacking each other's satellites. You can have physical attacks from space to ground. You can have physical attacks from ground to space. But you can also do things like jamming, which is you know electronic warfare. You can do things like cyber attacks, which is also you know, and not a physical type of warfare, but a very effective one. Um, And for war in space, I think a lot of people think it's going to be something like we see in Star Wars, you know, very visual, where you have, um, you know, things or rockets, whatever. Hitting each other, you know, big explosions and fireballs, and it's going to be that sort of thing and debris being created. You know, first of all, there's no fire in space. There's no oxygen. So, sorry, that dream is dead. But I mean, just in terms of you know physically attacking each other's satellites, I think it's where a lot of people think about or where their mind goes to. We talk about war in space, but really, realistically speaking, what you're going to see, what do you see? We already see jamming of satellites because it's relatively easy to do. Um, you have plausible deniability. And it's not considered a red line and that once you jam a satellite, it's considered a triggering effect that automatically escalates to conflict. Um, But it could, I mean, depending on what you jam and for how long. And the same thing for cyber uh, attacks. You know, cyber um, space, they've been known to happen. A lot of um, companies and owner operators don't like to talk about it just because it's perceived as even admitting to an issue um, with cybersecurity is a strong vulnerability that they don't even want to talk about. But we've known of a few cases where it's happened, and you know, and, and again, it's one of those things where you know, for all cases, cyber, not just for cyber and space, but just for cyber in particular, um, it's really hard to know necessarily where the cyber attacks come from, um, and it's really hard to, imagine. and so that makes them an extremely attractive weapon. You know, if it's something that you can use, you can deny you used it, and. It, You can try and interfere with your competitor or enemy's ability to use their space capabilities. I mean, I could see where that would be something that would be considered a very usable tool in a toolkit.
0: To your knowledge, what international guidelines exist which address this intersection between space and cyber? Uh,
1: There's no, as far as I know, there's no real international guidelines that address specifically space and cyber. Um, There's manuals of how do you... um, Warfare legally, <laughs> um, and you know, there's a Tallinn manual that that specifically for cyber, and there's a couple competing manuals, the Womera manual and the Millimos manual that are talking about war in space and how you do that from a legally um, supportive standpoint. But there's no real guidelines in and of itself. Now, having said that, there are, I guess, um, discussions. Within the United Nations, they have these things called group of governmental experts where they get together and talk about issues and try to come up with consensus driven recommendations that they can then give to the Secretary General or the head of the United Nations. Um, so they've done cyber a couple times, six group of governmental experts meeting right now. Um, and space sometimes is a part of that, but oftentimes the space discussions are in their own discussion and cyber's in their own so there's not a lot of uh, cross-linkage which I think is a real pity um, but also I can see why that is just because um, each space and cyber have their own security considerations and they set off their own political um, process yes they, they 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 have their own um, speed bumps that they have to deal with and so I, I would imagine that not wanting to bring space into the cyber discussions the cyber the space discussions they're a firewall if you will speaking to cyber groups um, to prevent issues from one into bleeding into the other now the fact of the matter is you can't avoid that entirely you know just because space and cyber are so intimately intertwined you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with the two of them but i think we're still at the very early stages of these discussions
0: following on from this what are the key organizations driving change in this area and which countries do you see as the major players
1: Well, I mean, um, in terms of NGOs, Chatham House has done some excellent work, Chatham House in the UK, looking at space and cyber. And I always direct people to them when they want to talk about those kinds of issues. Um, So it's really, I think, just more individual expertise on this issue than actual organizations driving change. Of course, I said the discussions in the United Nations. um, You have, you know, people that work on cyber issues. the you know in terms of the safety of the cyber domain i don't think the for the space security people cyber is kind of secondary because cyber tends to take up all the oxygen in the room when you're talking about security issues once you start talking cyber that's all you talk um so there's not a lot of interwovenness between the two um but i think that's starting to change just because you know for example um people are starting to recognize that cyber is considered a legitimate, well, it's not considered legitimate. It is perceived as a legitimate tool for attacking space capability, counter space capability is how we call it. And so for example, my organization, the Secure World Foundation, we do an annual counter space threat assessment, um, which you can find on our website for free. And we've got um, executive summaries in French and Spanish, as well as the whole thing in English. Um, And we talk about cyber capabilities as a, potential tool of counter space so that's something i think that's starting to become more involved but i will say you know our our counter space threat document we split up our um, chapters into u.s russia china india north korea iran um japan india um, sorry japan and france and then we have a kind of in in each one of those chapters we break down what we know about all the various aspects of the counter space capabilities then at the end we have kind of a catch-all chapter on cyberspace just because it's an issue, we know it's a concern, but it's so difficult to find information on individual countries' capabilities that we just kind of put it all at the end. So, I mean, I think that's going to have to change and we're working on it, but it just, I think it also indicates the level of difficulty there is in finding information that you can talk about in an open-source manner, and unclassified manner on this issue.
0: Moving to more recent news... Given attempts by the U.S. to form a framework for outer space diplomacy as part of its Artemis Accords initiative, how does cybersecurity fit into that equation?
1: Well, the Artemis Accords is interesting because it's being used as a way to build, I guess, a common level of norms for behavior in the moon. <laughs> um, and you know, so the U.S. wants to get back to the moon by twenty twenty four. They want to get the first woman, and then the next American man, um, back on the moon. And so they're looking at saying, okay, well, what sort of, um, what sort of responsible behavior do you want to see? And in one way, I think this is very encouraging because it indicates that there is a responsibility for looking out for how your actions in space affect others. So I think that's really good. Um, I think cybersecurity is more an undercurrent of that discussion than anything else in that once you're doing these activities in space and on the moon, you're going to want to make sure the information you receive is secure and um, accessible at all times. And obviously, cybersecurity is a part of that.
0: Additionally, in August of 2020, Washington announced the U.S. Clean Network program seeking to target foreign involvement in ICT infrastructure in the U.S. How do you imagine this will impact upon the U.S. commercial space sector?
1: Well, this discussion, it's part of a larger issue where the U.S. is very concerned about China. I mean, it all comes back to China. We, The U.S. has a complicated relationship with China, not just in cyber, not just in economics, but in space and all aspects of, you know, concerns about the Asia-Pacific region, concerns about global relations as China uses its software capabilities to get access to markets and resources around the world. So I think there's just one more example we have of that. Uh, the, the problem that I see for the U.S. attitude towards China is that oftentimes our concerns about China cause us to take actions that make our concerns concrete and even worse than we had imagined. You know, the thing I always like to point out is that the reason why China even has an active or it's such a strong active space program, is that um, it was started by a Chinese scientist who was working in the United States. He had worked on the Manhattan Project. He had worked on the U.S. rocket program. He was one of the beginners, um, the people that really instigated a lot of things at JPL in terms of the rocket program. But there were concerns that he was sharing information with the Chinese government. And so the U.S. investigated him and kept him under house arrest. And finally, he's like, peace out, I'm out of here. Went back to China and he started. And they started their nuclear program. Like we, we created that situation um, in the 90s. We were concerned, the United States was concerned about Chinese um, space capabilities, And so we put a, a ton of export control restrictions in terms of what sort of space capabilities or technologies could be sold to China. But then up happening is that a lot of countries just took up the slack and trying to still develop its capabilities. And so we see this time and time again, where we overreact. And the last point I'll make on this matter is, you know, the US is actually restricted in terms of how it can cooperate with China on space by, from a bilateral viewpoint. There's a thing called the Wolf Amendment, um, which prevents the White House and NASA from doing bilateral cooperation with China, unless they report it to Congress and they get a sign off from the FBI. I mean, and so, It isn't prevented, but it really puts a real hamper on doing so. And so that's a real statement. You know, you think about it. The U.S. and China are two of the biggest actors in space. They're the most active. They spend the most money. They've got satellites. Um, But they're really, I would say, almost precluded from bilateral cooperation, which sends a signal about how they're going to cooperate elsewhere. And it affects, I think, other aspects of the relationship. And so things like this U.S. Clean Network program is just one more I won't say nail in the coffin, but you get my point. It's one more piece of evidence that the U.S. is not looking at China as a potential competitor or even someone that they want to work with. They're looking at it with hostile concerns. And I think that definitely shapes um, the relationship. But it's not just one way, I should point out. But, I mean, we only control what we do. So that's kind of how I look at that.
0: Finally, to finish off, if you were to become the president of the United States, how would you work to promote space and cyber within national policy?
1: Well, um, just within the past couple of weeks, actually, the, uh, this is uh, October 1st, we're, we're taping this, and uh, within the middle of September, the U.S. released its um, SPD-5, uh, Space Policy Directive 5, which talks about cybersecurity of space capabilities. And so it really puts a priority on building in cybersecurity from the ground up and from the beginning of a space... Um, program uh, or a space capability or a satellite, however you want to talk about it. And so I think that's very encouraging that they prioritize and put this in there. Um, they look at the U S government entities as helping to implement, but not prosecute anyone who doesn't do this. So it's a, it's a light handed approach, but I think it's a good first step. And I would like to see more discussions at the national really remote security of cyberspace and space capabilities in order to make sure that, you know, we can get the benefits from space over the long term.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Victoria, for your unique insight into outer space policy and governance, cybersecurity, and sustainability from an American perspective. We look forward to expanding on these topics with you again in the future.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And for our curious listeners out there eager to learn more about international space policy and governance, sustainability, and the peaceful uses of outer space, please visit the Secure World Foundation website at www.swfound.org. We thank you for joining us again today, and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode of Decoding Cyberspace.